Alert Medic 1 respond. Box area 19 dash. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. Hello and welcome to the Alert Medic One podcast. My name is Mustafa Sadiq. Ken can't join us today. We are recording from... From Emmitsburg, Maryland, I'm back to finishing up my Emergency Management Basic Academy here. Uh, today we're joined by two guests. First, I'll introduce Kyle McKnight. Uh, so Kyle is a, uh, so are you an Emergency Management, what's your official title now? Yeah, EM Specialist, Emergency Management Specialist. Yeah, so he is a Emergency Management Specialist uh, from Texas. Uh, so uh, he's been a paramedic for how long? Oh, shoot, uh, 2008. I think. Nice, nice. I uh, I was in high school then. Yeah, so uh, he's been a paramedic since 2008, uh, so he's been, uh, served in both uh, public and private EMS services, with the bulk of his paramedic experience being in uh, William- Williamson County EMS in Central Texas, uh, where he uh, has served as a field training officer. With his duties with emergency management as a emergency management specialist uh, is how I met him here. He's in my emergency management basic class basic academy class um and let's see here you uh went to uh northern northern arizona university and you got your mba from west texas a&m that's all correct welcome um we also have with us uh a old friend of mine from the johns hopkins hospital when i was in my pharmacy aspect of my life uh so dr dennis marjanku or uh, did i say that right or yeah, so Dr. Dennis Marjanku earned his doctors of pharmacy from Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, so what, Peacock, right, at the University of Sciences in Philadelphia. Following that, he completed his pharmacy residency at Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania, and stayed on to complete a hematology-oncology pharmacy residency at Geisinger as well. He recently just completed his residency and is now a bone marrow transplant clinical pharmacist at Methodist University Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Thanks for joining us, Dennis. Glad to be here. So uh, today we're going to be discussing sickle cell. So I think, uh, you know, as a paramedic, uh, not one of the most common calls that I ran, but specifically when I was running these calls, uh, that oftentimes these pain, these patients were in a, acute pain, often couldn't afford their medications, or they weren't able to. There were a ton of barriers for them to get their care. So today I want to dive into first and foremost the physiology, the, you know, the normal physiology of blood. Uh, we'll dive into the pathophysiology of sickle cell, and then we'll go into the various treatment um, uh, modalities. So not only our management of the you know the acute pain that we can find the the our patients in, but what their expected clinical course is once they get to the hospital. So Dennis, uh, if we can begin, the first thing I wanted to do was get started with uh, some normal physiology, you know, baseline physiology for. Uh, you know, how you or I, someone who doesn't suffer from the disease, what, uh, you know, what their blood components are, what the, you know, what the purposes are, uh, so on and so forth. So do you want to get started with that? Sure. So the three basic components of your blood, um, aside from all the proteins and other things that are going on, the three components of your blood cells are your red blood cells, which transport oxygen, uh, your white blood cells, which are your immune system and fight off infection, and those are separated into essentially your innate immunity and your acquired immunity, which are your kind of frontline immunity, and then your more long-term uh, immunity that's going to have a more lasting effect, and then platelets, which are the things that stop you from bleeding. 
Um, so sickle cell disease is a disorder of red blood cells, uh, specifically, namely a specific component of the red blood cell, which is hemoglobin. So everyone's familiar with hemoglobin. It's the protein that actually binds to oxygen um, while it's in the red blood cell, so that when the red cells are traveling through the blood, it doesn't, you know, escape. And then once it gets to the tissues, the hemoglobin will give off the oxygen to another protein called myoglobin, which is similar, but has a slightly higher affinity for oxygen, which allows it to pull it from the hemoglobin into the tissue. And then after that, the hemoglobin will just stay in the red blood cell, go back to the lungs, get some more oxygen and repeat the process. The normal form, the broadly speaking, the normal form of hemoglobin is hemoglobin A, which is made of two alpha and two beta subunits. And if you don't remember anything from biochemistry, that part isn't really important. The important part is that the uh, primary gene for normal formation of hemoglobin is the hemoglobin beta gene, or HBB. Like all genes, you get one copy from mom, one copy from dad. And then as it's the as HBB is a dominant gene, you only really need one copy of the normal allele to actually have the normal hemoglobin uh, phenotype. That's kind of broadly speaking what the normal physiology for uh, sickle cell disease is. So again, it's a disorder. sickle cell is a disorder of hemoglobin where you don't have that normal hemoglobin. You would have two recessive copies of the HBB gene, which would, instead of giving you hemoglobin A, give you something called hemoglobin S. Um, but we can get into that a little bit once we get into pathophysiology. Yeah, no. So thank you so much for that. You know, quick explanation. So, um, I, I mean, I think it's a great time to segue into that. So, what are we seeing? You know, specifically, you know, at the cellular level, once uh, you know we are, you know, under a stain, we're taking a look at our patient's blood for uh, patients that have sickle cell. Um, so on the cellular on the cellular level, um, you'll kind of see exactly what the name says. So in a normal red blood cell, it kind of looks like that donut shape. It's a circle with a slight dimple in the center, and it, that it, they're kind of tiny cells um, designed to go into the, all the little capillaries. They go single file, just to give you a picture of how tiny they are. They'll go single file into the capillaries to deliver the oxygen. In a patient with sickle cell, when you look at it under a microscope, they actually look like sickles. Um, if you think about like the Grim Reaper, that kind of shape, it's that sharp bladed edge type of shape almost, which if you Google pictures online, you'll know what I mean. That is kind of what you'll see on a microscope for patients with sickle cell. And it won't be all of their cells, but it may be a percentage of their cells. You'll, you still may see some normal cells in a sickle cell patient, but you'll see a, a very non-insignificant amount of these sickle cells. Gotcha. So, um, you know, taking the next step up, uh, how do these patients, uh, you know, what are some common ailments that these patients will have? Something that, you know, uh, before they get to, you know, that acute pain crisis, uh, what are some other uh, uh, you know, symptoms that these patients may experience? So the primary one you'll see is that pain crisis, especially during the sickle cell crisis. Other things you may notice, um, you could see a concomitant infection with the sickle cell crisis. Um, primarily uh, pulmonary infections. You could see dehydration, either from a lack of drinking and in addition just from the uh, way the cells are formed. And you could also see, not so much as a symptom, but what could be a trigger if a patient has an acidosis that can actually increase the amount of sickling that their cells will develop. Other things you may see, again, more so for the EMS people, you may see some uh, people may, may be a little bit more tired because, again, they're not having that good those good cells to carry the oxygen. So they could have like a shortness of breath. They could have just feel general fatigue and malaise, that sort of thing. 
Hey, so uh, I know you mentioned uh, increased risk of pulmonary uh, infections. What causes that from, from the sickle cell? The, so the pulmonary infections are caused by the formal name for it is acute chest syndrome. But my understanding is that through a lack of uh, proper blood flow into the lungs, you essentially have, I guess, like sequestration of like bacteria that aren't able to be cleared. Um, right. Which leads, yeah, because like stagnant fluid, maybe. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think of it as uh, you know, you have parts of your body that are less likely to find infection, and those areas are typically areas that receive high amounts of blood flow. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you think of diabetics, you, we're looking at foot problems typically because people already have poor circulation to their feet, um, and so if you have reduced blood flow to the lungs, I'm I'm assuming that that's gonna manifest in kind of the same pathophysiological way yeah yeah how's that sound that's i mean that's pretty that's pretty spot on so um the other thing that could play a role is uh inflammation which can occur um which again can occur in all areas of the body but if it does present in the lungs if you have inflammation you have uh increased spaces between in the cell between the cells which can lead Mm -hmm. to kind of uh, translocations of bacteria which can further exacerbate your pulmonary infections so uh, kind of transitioning to the, you know, these patients experience a ton of pain, uh, right? So I'm, I'm thinking it's from an ischemic process then. Yes. So um, again, ischemia is just lack of blood flow. So if you're not having proper red blood cells going to these areas, it's sort of like a, not like a heart attack, but essentially it's a functional uh, ischemia that's caused by lack of good cells and good oxygen carrying cells going to whatever, whatever area of the body they're not able to get to. Which is, which is one of the primary causes, um, and kind of going back into something we mentioned with the pulmonary side, the inflammation as well um, can also kind of lead to some of the pain. If you have infl- inflamed internal organs, people can get pain from that as well. Gotcha. So, like, when from a hospital perspective, so you, you kind of heard you know, we were discussing earlier the you know so pre-hospital management. You know, I think from an opiate standpoint, uh, the national pushes for fentanyl. Right. Uh, so in Maryland, we deliver, you know, one mic per kilo, max two under the first dose. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can repeat it as necessary with a max, uh, I believe, of 400 mics. Um, Kyle, what was your dosing again? So for our adult patients, uh, and this is in the central Texas region, uh, we're looking at uh, 0.5 to 2 micrograms per kilogram for uh, our adult patients. We're dosing every 10 minutes. Uh, there is no max dose for that. So it is weight based with no max and then there is no terminal max. So we can repeat Q10 as needed to reach pain relief. Um, Typically though, we're looking at, uh, if we're, if we're giving patients the, the upper end, that two microgram per kilogram dosing, and we've repeated that twice and we're still not achieving pain relief is when we're going to start exploring additional options for pain relief for these patients, which in our system would then be ketamine. Gotcha. So, uh, Dennis, from uh, you know the the blog article that you wrote, uh, it seems that your uh, you know the in hospital uh, analgesia kind of are in line with what we do pre hospital. Similar. So, um, generally, um, I've never seen ketamine used. I know it is an option, and then I've kind of seen what you've described uh, with either fentanyl um, or morphine. Sometimes we'll start with. It really depends. Um, a lot of times, if people come in with EMS the EMS professional will, you know, give them whatever their preferred pain medication is. And then once they get into the ED and into a bed, um, we'll usually start them. Sometimes the, depending on the ED physician, they would have either continued a similar medication to what was started 
en route, um, or they may just use their preferred if you know it was a different medication. But generally, it was kind of usually that fentanyl um, or morphine to start. Gotcha. So, and also uh, within the hospital, I know you guys use meparidine. Uh, do you mind uh, discussing that a bit? Sure. So, meparidine. Um, not sure how much you guys use it on the EMS side, but uh, not at all. Okay. From what I know, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's an opioid. Uh, we don't have to get into all of the pharmacology behind it, um, but kind of the big things to know about it is that it has an extremely short half life. Um, where that if you were to use it for pain, you would have to dose someone probably several times within an hour. That's how short it is. Um, which again, similar to kind of fentanyl, you may do that a couple times in an hour if the patient isn't responding. But meparidine has an incredibly short half life. It's really the only time I've ever actually seen it used in the hospital was for uh, rigors um, from medications like amphotericin um, or even from platelets. Um, but that's kind of where I've seen it used. It, is technically an opioid it does work on opioid receptors so it can be used um but again with the frequent frequency of administration in addition it has a an active metabolite normaparidine that has an incredibly long half-life of about 30 hours um, which can obviously accumulate if you're continuously giving someone meparidine because it has a short half-life then that active metabolite is going to continue to accumulate because that's not nowhere close to being out of the person's system and then that can also be exacerbated if a patient has impaired renal function, which the problem with sickle cell patients is sometimes they do have impaired renal function because the sickle cells are damaging the tubules of their kidneys. So their renal function may be a little bit hindered, which would just exacerbate the problem. So meparidine, um, from my experience, isn't really an ideal option. Other th problems with meparidine, it does have some side effects. Um, so it has kind of, uh, you know, you may see some CNS depression uh, with like with other opioids and some respiratory depression, but it can also cause uh, more, I guess, intense CNS, CNS side effects like dysphoria and even seizures. Um, so there are dose caps on it. Um, if you were going to use it, it's recommended doses no more than 600 milligrams in a 24-hour period. Um, and again, that's like ideal situation. Someone has good kidneys, you know, everything's going okay. Um, if they have impaired renal function, pull that back a little bit. And then if I know sometimes in the EMS setting, it's hard to kind of get a good medication history, but if they are on an MAOI, um, so kind of your old school antidepressants, which I know a lot of people aren't on anymore, but you can get a serotonin syndrome with concomitant use. So just be aware of that. And it's actually recommended that if they are, in an, are on an MAOI, you should hold that for at least 14 days before giving them a parodine, which again, another reason it's not really an ideal option. Can you describe some MAOIs? Sure. So um, it's kind of, your, again, you're, old school antidepressants depressants all they all end in a certain a certain suffix and i'm trying to actually remember a lot of them because i haven't seen these in a while um, yeah that, that's that's fair yeah. yeah um i'm not sure that i've seen them either yeah, yeah. so again you, you'll only really see them in like kind of your really old people maybe who have been on them for a while some of them uh so hydrazine uh hydrocarbazine, tranalcipramine, um, which oh is maybe, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know any of these. Yeah, some of the more uh, that you, the more common ones you may see, uh, resagiline, siligiline, um, which are both used for uh, Parkinson's, I believe, um, mm. have like an MAOI component to them. Or they're not full MAOIs. But again, yeah, super rare medications, hardly anyone's on them at this point. And they usually end in like that INE suffix. Gotcha. So for, and, and so 
um, you know, for these medications, you know, they're going to have a higher pain uh, scale mm-hmm. a score. For the mild to moderate acute pain, uh, what are like what are some recommendations for like use of like NSAIDs, you know, acetaminophen, or even like you know, Ketorolac or anything like yep. that? So on the mild to moderate side in the acute setting, um, again, if their pain score is a three or a four, um, you don't have to rush for the fentanyl. If they're at a three or a four, hit them with you know an NSAID uh, or Tylenol. Either of them could be fine. Um, in the acute setting, the again, the only thing you have to watch out for with your NSAIDs is renal function. So again, uh, people with sickle cell disease may have impaired renal function, so don't overload them on NSAIDs because you could uh, worsen their renal function. Um, Ketorolac is a good option. Again, though, with the NSAIDs, that's the most notorious for kind of causing those GI bleeds. So um, generally, it's limited to you know five days of use, which again, when five days, hopefully you have the pain under control. But um, just something to think about. Um, the other thing you may know is, or you may know is, uh, people may be on NSAIDs prior to coming in. So uh, they may have been on like a maintenance pain regimen just to kind of hold them over. Um, so if they are on an NSAID or Tylenol or whatever, and that usually works for them, um, you can, if they come in with a sickle cell crisis, you could try to go up on the dose a little bit. Maybe that might help during the acute episode if they're not already at like the max dose of naproxen or whatever. Um, just to kind of not really change around their meds too much. Because the thing you have to worry about is if you they come in with an acute episode, you give them a bunch of opioids, um, then once you start to wean the opioids off, making sure that their pain doesn't come back. Yeah, so that's what I was going to transition to. Um, so oftentimes a lot of these uh, patients, uh, they are heavily dependent on high, high doses of opiates. And um, oftentimes, you know, that, that – turns into an addiction right um so i've i've had uh you know a lot of experience uh with especially when i was going through my training uh where these patients end up being you know uh, uh, coming to the er very regularly and a stigma is developed you know a a subconscious stigma uh, stigma gets developed by you know whether it's providers whether it's nurses who uh are you know see these patients as seekers right as drug seekers um, and I think it's a fine line because these patients are, you know, experiencing significant pain. Uh, so how do you, you know, as a pharmacist, you know, as part of the healthcare team within the hospital, how do you guys approach that problem? Uh, so from my point of view, you know, even seekers and people who are addicted, they can still have legitimate pain. If a seeker comes in and they just got in a car crash and had a bunch of surgery, they're still going to be in probably legitimate pain after their surgery. So there is still instances to use yeah. opioids in that setting. Um, obviously in the, you know, the hyperacute setting when they first come into the ED or if they're en route with you guys, um, you know, you could, you could try a little bit of a, an NSAID if you want to, if you have a shot of Toradol, you want to give them just to kind of see if that'll help a little bit. So you don't have to reach for the opioid, but you may end up having to reach for the opioid anyway, um, at least to immediately get their pain under control. And then once it's under control, you could start thinking about titrating down and, you know, multimodal pain therapy, um, Mm -hmm. I think so in the absolutely when there's a you know a concurrent a traumatic injury or something like that but when the primary complaint is pain secondary to sickle mm-hmm. how do you all approach that So from the pharmacy perspective I will usually defer to the provider um usually when I'll be there when they do their physical exam they'll do you know the uh check if the, if they say you know one part of their body hurts and the provider goes to check on that body and he has a you know the provider has a reason to think okay this probably actually does hurt you know based on their physical exam then I'll kind of be more or less wary of saying okay maybe this is 
just seeking behavior. And then, if, you know, if they're able to talk, I'll just uh, listen in when the provider or the nurse is talking, or I'll ask them a couple of questions that I think may be pertinent just to kind of see like, hey, just to kind of gauge the room and see, does he seem like he's actually in pain or do they really seem like uh, they're just seeking? Usually people who are in pain, you can learn pretty quickly that they are in actual pain and they're not seeking. People who are in just seeking behavior, usually the, the facade doesn't really hold up as long just because if they're in a sickle cell crisis, they'll probably be in pain. As a pre-hospital provider, I can fix their pain earlier than the ER, right? Because I'm there already. I have the means to do it. Even like people are like, oh, you, it, they'll uh, leverage, you know, a short transport time for pain management, you know, not holding pain management. And I'm saying mm-hmm. that if you're there and right. it's in your scope and, you know, you can make the patient feel better, you, right. you should do that thing, right? Because right. it's not immediately they walk into the ER and they're going to get, you right. know, IV fentanyl. That's not going to work. They're going to get registered. They need to be evaluated. They need to be triaged, you know, all that stuff. Um, so yeah, no, I, and I 100% agree with you. I will say though, that one of the hardest things that I have that I experience is delineating, um, in, and not just sickle patients and patients in general that aren't acutely injured, aren't acute, you know, like it might be a, a mm-hmm. sprained elbow or something like that, um, gauging subjective pain versus objective pain. Um, so what I like to do is, you know, just from a you know personal uh, you know uh, assessment tool that I use is I'll of course ask them their subjective rating, um, but then I will make compare compare that with the uh, you know an objective faces score, and if they're matching, then you know that'll lead me towards yes, I'm going to use uh, you know some heavy drugs. Um, excuse me. On the flip side, if I see the patient every week. For the same complaint, and their you know their uh, subjective score is a ten out of ten, where their faces score is a zero, and and that's that's a point that I try to teach a lot of the new paramedics that I you know that are in our programs that uh, making that uh, right. it's not a either or right it's not faces or uh, you know a subjective number scale it, it's both that that both of those should be part of your assessment right treating the the patient in their totality not yes. just uh, your observations and their report. Um, during your patient interview, you're also taking into account vital signs, mm-hmm. um, whether that be, you know, blood pressure, uh, tachycardias, things of that nature. Um, I think all contribute, and it is. It's a whole picture scenario. It's not just a subjective pain score. Yeah, and I call that the clinical umbrella, right? Like all these things fall under the clinical umbrella that give us our differential. So, Which I think is a good question, too, as, you know, beyond a, a physical exam, are there really any other telltale signs that we can point to, or, or is there testing that's done um, in the clinical setting that confirms that these patients are, in fact, in a crisis as opposed to, um, you know, having, you know, just a bad day or in, in, a, in a bad case scenario, see, you know, practicing um, seeking. So I know, again, from my perspective, one of the things I look at what, which you already mentioned was kind of your vital signs, just because if, you know, they say their pain is at a 10 out of 10, but you look at their blood pressure and it's, you know, normal and their heart rate is normal. They're not breathing fast, um, kind of things like that. Then you, you know, they may, if they were in that much pain, their blood pressure may probably would go up their respiratory rate and their heart rate may go up just because of all the pain they're in. But if they say they're in a ton of pain and they're just hanging out and all their vitals point to the fact that they're just hanging out, then again, that may be kind of an inkling that they may not actually be in pain. Like you also mentioned, repeat offenders. So if you see the same guy every week, something like that, again, that may be a seeking behavior. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's no you know test that you could say yes, you're in a, 
a sickle cell crisis, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once you know, so now that we you know, as paramedics, we've we've brought them to the hospital. We've you know, you guys have gone through your initial assessment within the ED. What's the patient's expected clinical course? How do they, you know, um, you know, once they, if they are admitted, you know, how do, are they usually admitted? What happens once they're admitted? Um, uh, what's the general treatment plan for these patients? Sure. So um, general treatment plan in my experience is get them under control in the ED in terms of pain. If there is a suspected uh, pulmonary infection superimposed, uh, uh, also called acute chest syndrome, which will usually be uh, found on a chest x-ray, you may see some infiltrates. Um, then you may start antibiotics uh, to cover primarily strep uh, pneumo um, and your atypical organisms. Again, so similar to like a pneumonia almost. Um, those are kind of the two most common things you'll see as pain management and antibiotics. Um, in terms of how many people get that antibiotics, um, for the most part, most of the patients I've seen that have gotten admitted were placed on antibiotics of some some kind or another, just because they did have those radiographic findings. I don't I don't know the exact percentage of how many people would qualify for that, but in my experience, it has been pretty common. Um, and then again, just managing their pain once their pain is fully under control in the hospital once and they're receiving a couple of days of antibiotics, we'll start to try to taper their pain medications down a little bit and think about discharge. So if they are on, uh, you know, morphine or fentanyl or Dilaudid or something like that for pain while they're in house, um, we'll try to get them on something um, less intense. So if they were already on an opioid, excuse me. We'll try to we'll try to go back to that opioid. So maybe the same dose, maybe a little bit of a higher dose, depending, or go up on a non-opioid such as an NSAID or Tylenol. Um, the thing I like about NSAIDs is that um, with a lot of your sickle cell pain, again, you mentioned that these people are off on chronic, long-term, high-dose opioids. Um, because of sickle cell, it's kind of like a chronic inflammatory state due to these the sickling of these cells. Um, the NSAID and the anti-inflammatory nature of the NSAIDs um, could theoretically help a little bit more because they are shortening that inflammation a little bit so that they're working on a pain from their general cyclooxygenase pathway that they work on an NSAID, but then through their anti-inflammatory nature, they may help a little bit more with some of that underlying inflammation that may also be contributing to their pain. And Dennis, you hit on a couple of these things already, but I was wondering if... Um regarding frequency of occurrence for these patients um, and uh, I guess expected duration of these crises. Um, are you able to shed any light on that? Um, specifically, when a patient's discharged, uh, what is the likelihood of a reoccurrence? Um, is there, you know, are they kind of in the clear for a month, a week, or could it, they have a recurring episode in the next 24 hours? And, um, and how long do we typically see these patients admitted before they're discharged? So in terms of how long they'll be admitted before discharged, usually a few days. Um, I've seen anywhere from maybe two to two days to a week at the high end. Um, generally, um, typically falls within you know two to four days or so. Um, in terms of how long until they may come back with another crisis, it really is patient specific. Um, if they are um, well controlled, and what I mean by that is. Sickle cell often presents in low oxygen states. So if, you know, someone is going, if they live 
in a higher elevation. So I'm, I lived in central Pennsylvania for a while. There, that's a very high elevation, at least compared to a lot of other areas. So there's a lot less oxygen there. So we had some people who just, because of the low oxygen environment, their cells tended to sickle more, which leads to these sickle cell crises. In when the cells are you know, properly oxygenated and there's a lot of oxygen, they tend to have their normal structure. So if people are doing things where they're entering a low oxygen environment, so if they're running a lot, that could make it, um, that could precipitate a crisis. If they go on vacation somewhere to a higher elevation to Colorado or something, um, and then just trying to, they may also be on a maintenance medication. So one of the other things that people may be on is uh, hydroxyurea. So that is a drug that actually is supposed to help reduce the frequency of sickle cell crises attacks by kind of actually increasing, reactiv it reactivates fetal hemoglobin, which replaces hemoglobin S, which is that uh, impaired hemoglobin. So fetal hemoglobin typically doesn't uh, present as much in adult patients, um, but by using hydroxyurea, it can increase the amount of fetal hemoglobin, which works for all intents and purposes, like normal hemoglobin. So that could theoretically uh, reduce the incidence of attacks. So you may go up on their dose of uh, hydroxyurea if they're having a lot of frequent episodes of these acute sickle cell crises. Um, if they come in for, you know, one crisis a year, you're probably going to just leave their hydroxyurea dose. You may, you know, give them a little bit more NSAIDs or something on discharge. But if they're coming in every two weeks or something, then you may go up on their hydroxyurea. You may have to increase their... Uh, pain medications just as a precaution, um, things like that. In terms of what I've seen, I've seen, I can't really say I've seen one over the other. I've seen people who came in, you know, once a year. I've seen one case of someone who came in essentially every three weeks or so um, because that was a pediatric patient. They weren't really taking their medications. So, you know, they just kind of had these frequent episodes. Um, so in my experience, it tends to be on the patient. Um, in terms of numbers, I don't have any numbers for exactly how often people tend to present to the emergency room with a sickle cell crisis. Um, from my experience, it's largely been patient specific. Sure. No, that I think that that covered it. Um, what what role, if any, does uh, hydration status play for these patients? So hydration is a big one. A lot of these people may be dehydrated um, just because uh, it. For one, if they're in a lot of pain, they may not be drinking a lot. Again, they could have an acidosis that precipitated their sickle cell crisis, so hydration is very important. Just getting people up and kind of moving again, it can increase their blood pressure, which their blood pressure may go down if they're in a sickle cell crisis. The other thing you have to worry about with people who are dehydrated is your blood becomes more concentrated, so then you have a higher concentration of these sickled cells, which can worsen or precipitate more vasoocclusive events of certain organs. So it's really just important to get a good fluid bolus in and then some maintenance fluids typically uh, i don't know what you guys do if you when you give fluids if it's an adult we'll usually just give like uh, a bolus and then start them on maintenance fluids for kids it's usually um weight-based generally um but the important thing is just getting them aggressively hydrated to help with those uh with the dehydration and possible vasoocclusive events right so I, mean, I think uh, a lot of our providers are probably very familiar with uh, rehydrating our dehydrated patients, um, and you're absolutely correct. We, you know, we typically go on a weight-based formula, whether it's a 500 milliliter or even a full liter bolus. Um, I think the question is, do we need to be aggressively rehydrating these patients? Maybe like we would see more in like a sepsis environment where we're just loading them up. 
in terms of aggressive hydration, like a sepsis picture, the thing you would have to worry about is if they were, again, had poor renal function or had a history of kidney disease, you don't fluid overload them. Sure. Um, if they have, you know, heart disease, something like that. You just want to watch out for fluid overload. Um, so, you know, just watch that they're not getting puffy, things like that. Um, in terms of like whether it's absolutely necessary to be more aggressive, um, I'm honestly not sure. Sure. No, that's, that's good. Um, the, uh, sorry, I'm just listing off all these questions that I've been writing down as you've been speaking. <laughs> uh, they'll probably all get it edited out. No, 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 no. Maybe one. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, um, so we've, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, some of the signs and symptoms that you'll see in these patients. Um, I think in my experience and what we're taught in paramedic school is, you know, the typical presentation of the, the abdominal pain and that acute, um, you know, high, high scale or high rated pain. Um, are there any other typical signs and symptoms or, um, other affected body areas? I know you mentioned the lungs and sometimes, you know, that diffuse chest pain. Do we have, um, you know, other typical signs and symptoms that you've encountered or that we can be on the lookout for or expect to see in these patient populations? Um, largely it's, from what I've encountered, it's kind of those big ones I listed off, um, you know, abdominal pain, some uh, pulmonary complications. Um, if you do have some more tissue ischemias, you may see kind of pain in that specific tissue. So again, especially in those smaller capillaries. So if they have you know, pain in their uh, digits um, from uh, tissue ischemia or vasoocclusion, you may notice they may complain of pain in their hands or their feet, something like that. Um, but largely it's that abdominal pain plus minus pulmonary that you're, those are your heavy hitters in terms of symptoms. Um, on lab values, which I'm not sure if you guys have, uh, how well you're able to get lab work when you're en route, um, but you may notice. Um, not very well at all. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the depending, was, depending on where we are, yeah. Right. Uh, so you may notice their hemoglobin may not be as high. Um, it won't be like a six, but, you know, probably won't be near the normal range. Um, you may yeah, also What's notice, a normal hemoglobin for uh, just around like 12 or 13 around there, okay. de depending on your gender. Um, and then you may just notice, um, we should step back. So in patients with sickle cell crisis, they can get what's called a hemolytic, a hemolytic crisis, which is a very rapid breakdown and drop in their hemoglobin levels. So in those patients, um, you may notice very low hemoglobin levels, but you may not necessarily see that in every single patient you encounter. Um, the other thing to watch out for is if they are on hydroxyurea, uh, which is that medication that uh, increases the amount of fetal hemoglobin, you may notice their white cells are a little bit lower because hydroxyurea is a little bit myelosuppressive. The other thing you may notice if they're, again, dehydrated, your kidney numbers may take a little bump, things like that. Um, your electrolytes, depending on how much of a hit your kidneys have taken, could be a little out of whack. But those are kind of some of the principal signs and symptoms you'll see. Uh, in addition to kind of, again, heart rate, breathing, pallor, if they're very uh, anemic from the lack of oxygen, things like that. Uh, do these patients have a, uh, a lower oxygen, like general lower oxygen saturation than normal? Like we consider normal like 93 and above, or do they usually run within the normal range? I believe they usually run within the normal range and the in general, and then again, once their oxygen saturation will drop is when these uh, sickle cell crises will generally occur. Um, but you may notice a little bit of a drop in their oxygen saturation um, 
when they're in the crisis, but that once you kind of get them out of the crisis and everything, that should go back up. Do uh, anticoagulants uh, affect these patients differently at all? Do you know? Not that I'm aware of. The anticoagulants don't really work on hemoglobin. They work course, on your population yeah. factor, so that shouldn't be an issue. I'm going to say, if anything, they probably have improved clotting abilities based on the shape of their hemoglobin, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I just didn't know if any management changed because of that. But Not that um, I'm aware of. Um, some, uh, some sickle cell patients, uh, if it's unfortunate enough, they can get strokes, actually, from the ischemia if it does happen oh, to go to yeah. Um, and the general recommendations for those patients are kind of your normal stroke recommendations of, you know, TPA, that sort of thing. Um, so if they're within that time frame, so there, in that terms, there aren't a lot of differences. Um, so I don't believe there's any differences. I've never run into any differences in anticoagulation in these patients because of just what's affected in the disease state. One of the things that I don't think we've got into yet, but we wanted to talk a little bit about was, um, a lot of the pre-hospital providers now are carrying ketamine. And using ketamine for pain relief, I know you mentioned that it's not something that you've typically seen um, clinically because you guys have access to um, a lot more options for analgesia than we carry. Um, I know in in our, in our system, we're giving ketamine typically one of two ways. We're either giving it IM and we're dosing at 0.6 milligrams per kilogram with a max dose of 20. Mm-hmm. And then we're if we're going to give it intravenously, we're going to go to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, and we mix that up in 100 milliliters of normal saline um, and then run that in slowly, um, trying to, to manage that patient. And some of the uh, issues that I've had uh, personally with giving ketamine for pain relief is I f- have found that it's hit and miss on patient populations, whether or not they actually achieve um, any sort of pain relief from that, um, you know, we may be able to talk a little bit about the, you know, the, the pharmacology of ketamine and it's, it's dissociative properties. And we're not trying to, you know, clearly disassociate the patient, but, um, sometimes when we're walking that fine line of dosing a patient for pain relief, they may or may not be achieving that. And then we start approaching that, that, that mild dissociative effects, Mm -hmm. um, that can be, um, scary for some patients. They, you know, we get some generalized, generalized anxiety in these patients. Um, and so maybe if we could talk a little bit about, um, some of those concerns and maybe some strategies for dosing on these patients so that they're, they're not feeling like they're losing grip on what's, what's going on around them. Sure. Um, so ketamine, um, it does have some opioid receptor activity, but I wouldn't, it's not classified as an opioid itself. Um, its primary mechanism is through the NMDA receptor, um, which, like you mentioned, these kind of uh, personality or dissociative uh, environments that people get into. The way I was taught, one of my preceptors during residency described it as the lights are on, but nobody's home when you give ketamine. So you may notice their eyes are open and everything, but they're just, you know, it's almost like an out of body experience for them. Um, so it doesn't work on it, again it does have some opioid receptor activity but it's primarily working on those nmda receptors um like you mentioned you've seen kind of hit or miss whether how well it works um really due to that because it's not really a targeting pain receptors specifically but rather um, how the person perceives what's around them and what's going on to them so i didn't really know much about its use in terms of clinical data in sickle cell crisis, so I did look up a couple studies. There have been a few studies that did look at ketamine's use 
primarily as an opioid sparing agent. Um, and the couple of studies I did find, one was in uh, pediatric patients from about 7 to 18, and then one was in adults. And the general um, results of both studies were pretty much the same in that they did giving ketamine on top of an opioid reduce the amount of opioid that you ended up ne excuse me, needing fully to manage their pain. The problem, though, is that people who received ketamine had a lot more side effects, um, and the number of the one study actually cited was about 38% versus about 3% with just opioids. So ketamine does have a lot of side effects. It's not benign. Some of the primary side effects, again, like you mentioned, is that kind of psychological manifestations, these like dreamlike states. People get they can get hallucinations. They can get a little, in a delirious state, um, which isn't rare. Um, the num numbers I've seen were anywhere from about 10 to 15 percent. Um, so it's a pretty high number if you ask me. Um, and again, more so in elderly patients. Now, again, um, I've seen sickle cell primarily in younger patients, um, but it's the same thing with them. You know, they can have all these side effects. So in terms of ketamine as a use for uh, sickle cell crisis, um, you mentioned uh, you have used it and you've seen kind of mixed results. That's kind of from looking into it, kind of what I've gathered as well. It has some benefit. It may help you reduce the opioids. So if you're trying to avoid a lot of opioids in patients, say they are, you know, they have a history of seeking behavior or something like that, then it may be an option. Or if, you know, you just don't want to put on a lot of opioids right away, say this is, you know, one of the first times you're seeing them and they're not on a whole lot of opioids at this time, but you're trying to be a little careful, then it may help you reduce the amount of opioids you're giving the person. Shouldn't really be used long-term. It's, you know, an acute situation, so you guys may use it, and then when they get into the ED, they may switch them to something else. Maybe their pain will be controlled at that point, something like that. In terms of route, one thing I've always remembered is giving ketamine, um, not necessarily IM, um, just because, uh, again, especially in kids, because kids, it may hurt a lot more if you give it intramuscularly. Kids may not, you know, uh, like the feeling adults may not may not like the feeling either because of how much it can hurt um but then the other thing with im absorption is it's a lot more erratic than iv if you give it iv you get 100 percent absorption if you give it im it's a lot more i don't know what the number is going to be of how much is going to be absorbed um so from that perspective i would say iv may be better if you don't have a line and you have to give im it's not going to be in the end of the world but just something to think about but again, in terms of my experience, I have never seen ketamine used. I've never been kind of in the EMS side, but when I was in the ED, I haven't seen it used that I can remember. Um, but it can be an option if you, you, know, you do have to use it. You can come right along and we'll show you, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, an EMS is pretty notorious for trying to find, uh, you know, the, the drug that will solve everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, you know, with a limited uh, drug inventory, you know, things that we can use to maybe think outside the box. Um, certainly not a first-line agent, um, I think, as you have clearly illustrated, um, but certainly a nice tool in the toolkit. Um, if, you know, your traditional or front-line medications are not working, you know, you can certainly explore that. You got yep. any other questions, bud? Um, no, I think that's... Uh, so I think uh, uh, this has been fantastic, I think. Uh, I do want to finish up with, uh, Dennis, if you are able to, um, can you, you know, as we wrap this up, um, we've talked about a bunch of different uh, topics within, uh, you know, our sickle cell population. If there were, you know, a couple key takeaways from this episode uh, that you would want to tell, you know, the average paramedic on the street, um, what would they be? 
don't be afraid to use opioids. I know everyone gets afraid of opioids with everything that's going on. Um, obviously, be aware of it. But, you know, if if you need to use it, you need to use it. Um, remember, do no harm to the patient is always one of the first rules we're, le- we're taught. So if you need to use it, don't be afraid to pull that trigger. Long-term pain control may not be your guy's wheelhouse. But again, just in the acute setting, think about maybe non-opioid medications as well. I know I just said to use opioids, but think about NSAIDs as well. You guys probably have a lot of Toradol with you. Um, if, so if you need to use that, use that. Tylenol. Um, multimodal pain control is always ideal over just shoving opioids in the patient. Those, those are the two big ones, I would say. Um, again, for other uh, providers or practitioners out there, you know, thinking about antibiotics, all that good stuff, and then making sure the patient is getting adequately hydrated so that you're not worsening any kidney problems or any other uh, end organ damage that may be occurring as due to a dehydration. So pain, dehydration, antibiotics, take care of it all. Good. I just thought of something else too. Um, I'm not sure if we touched on this, but you did talk about um, location in the country, mm-hmm. specifically with regards to altitude um, and and how that can affect the patient. Um, but patient populations in general, when we're talking about demographics, um, mm-hmm. I'm aware of a little bit of uh, patient populations that this is more frequent in. Um, mm-hmm. But could you talk a little bit about um, the the demographics of who are we seeing that typically has sickle cell? Yep. So overall, just globally speaking, the numbers I found for total amount of patients in the U.S. that have sickle cell, about 100,000. Um, so it's not a huge population, but it's not a small population either. Most commonly in African-American uh, patients, the, uh, in terms of new, newborns diagnosed with sickle cell, it's about 1 in 400. And depending on where you read, you may see a little bit of a different number, but around 1 in 400 newborns have sickle cell. So your African-American populations are the biggest uh, population that has this uh, condition. You may see it in Hispanic patients as well, but by and large, it is going to be those people of African, specifically um, people who are of uh, um, sub-Saharan African descent. So um, again, those sub-Saharan African countries, if um, the patient is from there or um, you know that's their heritage, those are the people who are more likely going to be affected by the disorder disorder thank you so much Kyle. you got anything else well thank you very much both of you guys for joining me uh, i think this was a really fun conversation uh really educational um i really like getting together with folks that uh you know are content experts in their different fields uh so uh, dennis thank you so much uh for all you listeners out there thank you so much for listening in be sure to follow us uh so on facebook we're uh, alert medic one uh, Twitter, we are alert underscore medic one. Uh, please be sure to give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, please tell your friends uh, and continue to send in your feedback. Um, as you know, Ken and I, Dr. Vitberg, what we always say, uh, this is a community-driven podcast, and we want to be able to give you, you know, uh, information and education that you guys want. Um, please let you know, give us, send us a review, tell us what we're doing right, tell us what we're doing wrong. And uh, continue to listen in. That's all for now. Thanks. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.